This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, Chris, and Pat. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Jeffrey Gus. Jeffrey Gus is a psychiatrist, a psychotherapist, a researcher, and was the co-principal investigator and director of psychedelic therapy training for psilocybin trials at the NYU School of Medicine. During our conversation, Jeff talks about his interest in psychedelics, its use for treating cancer-stricken patients with existential despair, and those with addictions such as alcoholism, anecdotes from those studies, its potential for helping those with mental illness, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, and Psychedelics' Proper Place in Our Society. Jeffrey's work and those like him are beginning to lend scientific credibility to the promise of psychedelic medicine. I think this is one of the world's most fascinating subjects and gives real hope to those who are suffering or simply want to live in a more wholesome, honest, and kind world. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeffrey Gus. Jeffrey Gus, it is a real pleasure to, to do this and to meet you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. As I mentioned, it's, it's great to have you here. And I, I think I mentioned this to you in, in our email exchange that I, I always, for, for guests, like to get the background story for how people became you know, kind of interested in and experts in the fields that are uh, discussed on this show. And I know you have spent many years in psychiatry. We just talked before we started recording about your, your upbringing in, in Louisville. I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Northwestern Pennsylvania. When you, when you think about your journey to this, this point in your career and your interest in psychiatry and in the mind, how do you make sense of that? Was that always there for you from the beginning? What, what's that story? Oh, there's so many stories in that question. Um, but at first, I think I'll tell the story of how I became interested in psychedelics, which is a very specific story. When I was, uh, I was born in 1953, and uh, the summer of love was 1967. Um, I was 14 years old. I was living in Louisville, Kentucky. And at that time, um, Look Magazine and Life Magazine, Newsweek Magazine were published weekly, and they were very important sources of, of information. I came into that, into uh, our home every week. And when I read about LSD on college campuses and what LSD does to people, I knew then that I was interested in psychedelics. Mm -hmm. uh, the experiences people described, the people that were drawn to uh, uh, psychedelics were, um, they just really appealed to me. And I knew that that was going to be a big part of my life. But 
1970 came and the Controlled Substances Act uh, came about. And I didn't graduate from high school until 1971. So uh, as far as I was concerned, psychedelics vanished uh, before I got out of high school. And so I really had no exposure to them until many years later uh, when I had become a psychiatrist and I was working at NYU uh, in their uh, substance use um, uh, addiction fellowship. Um, and it really was in 2006 that, that I first saw that psychedelic uh, experiences and psychedelic research and psychiatry could come together. It was in 2005 that I traveled to a psychedelics conference in Basel, Switzerland, which was celebrating the 100th birthday of Albert Hoffman, who is the uh, uh, chemist that synthesized LSD uh, 25 when he was working for Sandoz in, uh, in Switzerland. And it was at that conference that uh, I met Charles Grove and many other researchers who were both interested in psychedelic experiences and psychedelic consciousness and how we could apply them for psychiatric problems using randomized clinical trial research protocol. I mean, there's a long history of psychedelics in psychiatry and in psychoanalytic therapy in the 1950s and some of the 1960s that's actually been kind of erased in our culture. We really have um, <clears throat> amnesia for how important psychedelics were to psychiatry, uh, at least in New York and in um, California during the 1950s. So I feel like we're really recapturing something that has been part of psychiatry and psychoanalysis before, but right now it's emerging as a new paradigm for the treatment of psychiatric problems. Uh, we haven't had that many new medicines in psychiatry for a long time. You may be aware that of the SSRIs, Prozac, Lexapro, Paxil, and so forth. And these compounds were introduced in the 19, late 1970s, but mostly in the 1980s. And Prozac, I think, first came out in 1988. And that was the last major sort of breakthrough in terms of treating uh, uh, depression and anxiety. We do now have ketamine, which works on in a unique way, works on a different neurotransmitter system than the serotonin system. But the psychedelics are offering, I think, a qualitatively different approach to the treatment of mental illness, if you want to use that term. And I think they often they offer um, an alternative way of looking at the nature of human suffering itself. And so not only are they a new new neurotransmitter system to be working in or a new way to work at it, but I think that they offer a kind of paradigm shift in how we understand human suffering and how we treat it. Hmm. So I think that there really is a revolution within psychiatry that's going to come about as we figure out how to use psychedelics for the treatment of a broad variety of, uh, of conditions that people have. I do want to add that there are many other settings in which psychedelics are creatively and effectively and safely used besides for the treatment of mental illness. That is the paradigm that is currently moving forward because <clears throat> it's the treatment of mental illness that will lead to a possible rescheduling of psilocybin, MDMA, possibly LSD from schedule one, which is uh, 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 you know, according to the uh, DEA, a schedule where there is no medical value and high addiction potential. Mm. 
Now, these medicines were put in there more for political than scientific reasons. Um, and it's a long, complicated story of how uh, psychedelics became a national uh, uh, emergency or a pseudo emergency in the, during the Nixon administration, um, leading to their uh, uh, being created as highly, highly dangerous and legal with huge, you know, sentencing for them. But we're working to change that. You know, the Controlled Substances Act was very good at putting compounds into schedules, but it didn't really have that much uh, uh, um, uh, specific that was drawn up in it about how substances would change or be removed from certain schedules. Yeah. But so that is the thrust of the research that's going on right now is trying to show that psilocybin can be a safe and effective treatment for major depression disorder, alcohol use disorder, cigarette smoking, um, compulsive disorder um, and some anorexia and so forth. And according to corollary, there is the use of MDMA uh, assisted therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's MDMA, PTSD, and psilocybin assisted therapy for uh, uh, depression that are the two main areas of research that are going on right now. Yeah. I, I, I know just as an American, as somebody who was raised in this country, as a child, these substances were clear in my mind as being as dangerous as crack, meth, the worst drugs that exist on this planet, the most dangerous drugs, the, the drugs that are most apt to actually ruin someone's life. I was certainly raised with that impression that the drugs that you just mentioned, psilocybin, LSD, ketamine, MDMA, they, they were all universally connected to one another in how pernicious they could be, how dangerous they were to, to people in our, our society. And I'm wondering for yourself, it sounds like you were exposed to literature about psychedelics from an early age. The transition that you have been a part of where there's there's been an opening in the medical community to inquire about the reality of some of these substances and you you just use the word medicine to describe um uh, some of these psychedelics what do you remember I, I think you may have just said that the the first conference that you went to was something like in 2005 related to the scientific community's interest in in psychedelics what did you as a doctor begin to learn and maybe you had learned you had known this for for decades but it just it wasn't possible to explore it in the medical community what what kind of evidence what kind of anecdotes were you learning about whether at these conferences or just in your life in general that made you think the stigma may not be warranted that the the, the danger that is associated with these drugs isn't isn't merited and that really the word medicine or its capacity for, for healing, for helping people might be real. Wow. But now that is a big question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, like many people, I was exposed to the extremely effective misinformation or disinformation uh, campaign that came out during the war on drugs. Uh, I mean, the Controlled Substances Act leading to the war on drugs that existed for the 60s, for the 70s. And then into the 80s, we began to have uh 
crack and cocaine and crystal methamphetamine began to emerge, all of which have the capacity to bring about an addictive process. Uh, The serotonergic uh, psychedelics like ayahuasca or DMT, psilocybin, uh, are not addictive in the sense that we cannot, they do not go to the reward center of the brain the way that amphetamines do, and you cannot get laboratory animals to become addicted to them in the same way that you can um, opiates or benzodiazepines or alcohol. Although it is interesting to note that uh, laboratory animals that are raised in happy home environments with lots of room to play and mate and socialize are much less likely to become addicted to those substances than those that are kept in bare bones, minimum isolation, uh, impoverished environments. So I think it's really important to not say that a substance itself is addictive. An addiction is a relationship between a substance and an individual and the culture that they live in, right? I mean, I think a good example is morphine which uh, in an emergency room or in, an, in, a, in a recovery room after a surgery is a gift from the gods to relieve pain in a way that um, is immediate, which takes just a few seconds for it to work. It's safe and it doesn't harm your body. And if you're in, in agonizing pain, it is a godsend. On the other hand, in another context with other people, it can be a horrible scourge. So it isn't the substance that's bad. It's the it's the relationship between the user, the context that they live in, and that particular substance's power to affect that individual in a certain way. Okay? Yeah. So in the same way, you might find somebody who is a polysubstance user and may even have a problem with polysubstances who also uses psychedelics, but psychedelics themselves um, do not qualify as addictive in the same ways that amphetamines and opiates and benzodiazepines benzodiazepines do. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of got off of your question a little bit. Can you can you bring me back to the question you want me to answer? I think I think just just uh, uh, right. I mean, you're a doctor, and people don't get into yeah. the field without wanting to help people, and. I, I would be curious to know what evidence, and you just spoke to the non-addictive quality uh, of psychedelics in general compared to some of the other the, the category one drugs that, that exist in this world. What, what evidence did you see or did you hear about that made you think there is something about these things that might be medically deeply healing or might revolutionize mm-hmm. or be, be of interest to my field specifically? Well, that's a very, it's a complicated winding story. Um, uh, I became a doctor um, for a lot of reasons, like, you know, most people. Uh, One of them was to help people. uh, And that includes both psychotherapy and medication. So I'm one of the the, um, type of psychiatrist that is more interested in doing uh, psychotherapy than in becoming an expert at working with medications. I did psychoanalytic training, and I consider myself to be uh, most experienced and most skilled at um, talk therapy or psychoanalytically oriented interventions. I'm a, I'm a good general psychopharmacologist, but I don't, I don't consider myself an expert at it. Mm-hmm. One of the shortcomings that I have seen in my 30 years of being a psychiatrist is that uh, the medications that we have generally are uh, affect suppressing 
them, right? We have anxiety, we have anti-anxiety drugs. We have depression, we have antidepressants, we have anti-manic, we have anti-anger. So we are in the business of looking at the human condition as one of excess. And if you have too much of something, then it's a disorder. And then the goal is to scale that back so that you don't have so so much of those pathological symptoms and you can function better, go to work, pay taxes, children, raise a family, and so lead a more adaptive, adaptation-oriented life. And this certainly is what psychoanalysis, when it came here after World War II, um, joined with the American dream following World War II of prosperity, family, um, uh, growing the economy, paying taxes, and so forth. So the the good life, the good post-World War II American life. Um, And to do that, you have to you know, be willing and able to go to work every day, come home, buy a new car every other year, um, and consume to keep a, consumer, a capitalist-based consumer economy going. And so this was part of the ethos of the 50s and, and the 60s. And there are many other factors that contributed to it. But psychedelics were a part of a group of young people questioning the um, work to earn money to spend, to work to earn money to spend, paradigm of life. People to opted out of um, uh, the traditional um, uh, work week, moved to the country, and there are many, many other things that went that contributed to this, including the Vietnam War, in opposition to, opposition to the war, and also <clears throat> the human potential movement in in psychology. You know, there are three main movements in American psychology and psychiatry. One is the psychoanalytic model. The second is the behaviorism. And the third is the human potential movement. Okay. Both psychoanalysis in America and uh, behaviorism are interested in adaptation and correcting um, excesses. Uh, the human potential movement is, looks more at becoming your most authentic self, truest self, expansion, and creativity as the highest, um, uh, loftiest goals to achieve, to seek, rather than love and to work, which uh, is something that Freud said but became heavily adopted by um, uh, uh, post-World War II um, European emigre analysts who came to America and wanted to get with get with the program here. So the idea of adaptation to become a better citizen versus radical expansion and becoming, uh, uh, integrating that which you keep in the shadow and that which is unknown, that's a really different model for, for treatment. So that always was very interesting to me. And early on, I became interested in... Um, non-traditional psychotherapy methods and counter groups and um, other ways of working that didn't try to reduce the amount of pain that you have, but instead looked at expanding the amount of freedom of expression that, that you're capable of. And I think psychedelics are uh, in many situations uh, oriented towards that. A psychedelic experience reduces our blinders, reduces our barriers to what's in our unconscious, both our personal unconscious and in the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. So with some of those blinders removed, and those blinders are what we call defenses, 
right? Defenses are what we have in order to not see some things and to only see other things, to know what to pay attention to, what to ignore. Our defenses are what make up our personality and our personality is based on uh, who we need to be in order to interact in the world that we're in based on how we were brought up. I mean, that's my, my opinion. Yeah. And uh, psychedelic experiences can help recover that which has been uh, put into the attic or the basement, i.e. our unconscious, whether it's a personal unconscious or a, or a, a, a collective or social unconscious. And so by becoming more and learning to live with the warded off, pushed away um, uh, um, dissociated parts of the self, you become expanded, you become more, and you begin to be able to face, know, talk about, and experience the things that previously were put asunder. And so that is how I think psychedelics are a truly uh, um, transformative paradigm shift in American psychiatry. Now, right now, they are not being um, studied or sold in that way. They're being studied or sold as uh, uniquely effective, or not uniquely, but uh, a newly effective pharmacologic intervention for major depressive disorder, one which needs certain kinds of therapies to be attached to it. But the model is um, really about reducing the burden of symptomatology and depression. That's what the research is oriented towards doing because that's what you need to do in order to um, reschedule something from schedule one to schedule two or three or four. You need to show that it's effective against the disorder and that it's safe. And that's where the research is, is oriented. That's where it has to be oriented because the rescheduling process, which is a scientific one and a, and a, a legislative one, requires the production of a certain kind of data. Hmm. That doesn't mean that it's researching that the research is looking at the best way to use psychedelics. It's looking at the best way to generate the data that the FDA requires for rescheduling. Yeah. Yeah. So we are going to be working, I, I believe, in the future with psychedelics in different kinds of therapy paradigms, with different kinds of patients, with different kinds of therapists to figure out not the best way, but the great variety of ways that these medicines can be used. Unfortunately, in contemporary research, there's a lot of clamoring for the best, the best approach, the best this, the best that, the best drug for this. And I think that it, the, the quest, that question is misguided. I think to ask what's the best drug for major depressive disorder implies that major depressive disorder is a really unified group of people. And it's not. Hmm. And um, there are different psychedelics, some of which might be better suited than others for any particular individual. And there also are different ther uh, therapy platforms that might be better for a particular patient or a particular doctor. Yeah. So it really is a connection between the medicine, the culture, the therapist, and the patient that all have to go together to say, what is the optimal way to use psychedelics in this person with this condition, in this culture, place and culture, and so forth. So I think that's the question that we should be answering. Hmm. It's not I think the question we're, we're asking right now in contemporary research. Contemporary research is much more narrowly focused as it has to be. Yeah. 
the I, I'm sure I'm not the only person who has contacted you after after reading the book How to Change Your Mind, which we talked about before we we started recording this conversation, which I think is the best book I've read in the last couple of years. And there are a couple quotes that I wanted to read from that book to give a little bit of background information um, about you know, yourself and the work that you do and, and some of the ideas that are posited in the book. And this, I think, dovetails pretty nicely into what you were just saying related to psychedelics and potentially a grand unified theory of mental illness. And there, there are a few here that I want to just tick through. And this is from the book, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. Could it be that the science of psychedelics has a, con a contribution to make to the development of a grand unified theory of mental illness, or at least of some mental illnesses? Most of the research in that field, from Robin, from Robin Carhart Harris to Roland Griffiths, Matthew Johnson, and Jeffrey Guss, have become convinced that psychedelics operate on some higher order mechanisms in the brain and mind, mechanisms that may underlie and help explain a wide variety of mental and behavioral disorders, as well as as well as perhaps garden variety unhappiness. This is a quote about you specifically. Jeffrey Guss, a Manhattan psychiatrist and a co-investigator on, on, on the NYU trial, thinks the moment could be ripe for psychotherapy to entertain a completely new paradigm. Gus points out that for many years now, this is him quoting you, we've had a conflict. We've had this conflict between the biologically based treatments and psychodynamic treatments. They've been fighting one another for legitimacy and resources. Is mental illness a disorder of chemistry or is it a loss of meaning in one's life? Psychedelic therapy is the wedding of those two approaches. And then finally, I still like that quote. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the last that sounds one. like me. Yeah. Uh, so many of the psychedelic trial volunteers Michael Pollan spoke to, whether among the dying, the addicted, or the depressed, described feeling mentally, quote, stuck, captured in ru ruminative loops, and felt powerless to break. They talked about prisons of the self, spirals of obsessive introspection that wall them off from other people, nature, their earlier selves, and the present moment. All these thoughts and feelings may be the products of an overactive default mode network that tightly links set of the brain structures implicated in rumination, self-referential thought, and metacognition, thinking about thinking. It stands to reason that by quieting the brain network, networking responsible for thinking about ourselves and thinking about thinking about ourselves, we might be able to jump that track or ease it from the snow. I would love just in transitioning from those quotes to get the story or the memory that you might have about the trials that you were involved in that Michael talks about in the book. And I have to imagine, given the bureaucracy of a university and the stigma of a lot of these substances, that that, that was a very high barrier to entry to allow a world-class medical facility and university to allow scientists affiliated with it to begin to do psychedelic testing to learn if there is something about these substances that might actually help people in very difficult times in their life. What do you remember about that investigation, how its difficulties in getting started? And, and what were you trying to, at least at first, what were you trying to, to test for? What was the initial goal or curiosity about using psychedelics in a certain manner? That's a great question. Uh, after um, 
the Basel conference in 2005, my friend uh, Alex Belser and I, who we went, we went to it together, came back to NYU and we encouraged Steve Ross and Tony Bosses to start a psychedelic reading group because you read all about these thousands of papers, these thousand papers that were published and 40,000 doses were given. And so we thought it'd be a good idea to read some of this literature, but it wasn't long uh, into that year that Tony Bosses brought forward his idea of doing um, psilocybin-assisted therapy for people with cancer-related existential distress. And so the idea of, of resurrecting or restarting the cancer-related anxiety research uh, came about as a result of that reading group. And with um, Julie Holland, uh, there had been, you know, murmurings and attempts to get to get this kind of research started again. But, you know, like a car, when you have to turn it over two or three times, it finally got going, um, uh, in part inspired by all the people that we met there who were doing uh, active research, in particular, Charles, Charles Grobe, who was due, who had uh, going a research project looking at cancer related anxiety. A cancer-related anxiety was something that had been studied in the 60s, both for the attenuation of cancer pain, but also the attenuation of cancer-related existential distress and, and worry. So we uh, had the idea of replicating, uh, in many ways, the, uh, the Grobe study and also incorporating many of the qualities and patterns and and procedures that were involved with the earlier 1960s research. And one person that connected those two is Bill Richards, who is still actively involved in uh, psychedelic research. Uh, he was part of the Spring Grove team and brought his wisdom and experience forward uh, through Jan Johns Hopkins uh, and was a central part of their, their uh, clinical team. So we did almost the same study as uh, each other, Johns Hopkins and NYU. That study got its you know conception maybe in 2006, but it really got birthed and started happening in 2008, hmm. and it lasted until 2013 for us to get those um, uh, the 29 people who completed our study. Hmm. So, did did you ask, ask me to describe to describe a patient? Or a participant that went through the study? Absolutely. I, I would love to hear that. Okay. Well, I, I think a really interesting story that um, uh, I can tell you is about a young man who came to us in, I think, the second or third year of college. And he seemed very healthy. And he was very healthy physically. Um, I'd like to, at this point, to point out that many, many people call this an end-of-life study, and it is not an end-of-life study. It is not for people who are terminally ill. It's for It was for people who have cancer-related existential fear, hmm. okay? So this young man um, had developed, he, this young man developed uh, acute leukemia in his senior year of high school. He was a track star. He grew up in a very close uh, religious family. He'd been homeschooled until he was, uh, you know, in the ninth grade. And even though, uh, and he got very, very ill uh, with leukemia, and then 
after he started receiving chemotherapy, he became extremely ill, lost a great deal of weight, could not feed himself, could not bathe himself, could not toilet himself, and was com uh, completely dependent upon his family for everything. In addition to that, his uh, family, which had been, uh, which which was and still is, highly uh, religiously observant, um, again with Bible homeschooling in uh, a particular um, uh, sect of Christianity, uh, he discovered that his faith in Christ, his faith in God, uh, his faith in prayer, all were empty, and that the suffering that he underwent um, did not respond to prayer or faith at all. And the only thing that, that solved him, that, that solved the problems that were facing him, was science. So he had this utter loss of faith and belief uh, that happened you know, in his family. He did get treated, he did get better, but he continued to feel as if he had a fragmented, cadaverous, cachectic, sick body. He did not feel well, even though he was healthy. And he came to us riddled with preoccupation with his cancer, and in a sense, still having a cancer-ridden body psychologically, even though there was lots of evidence that he had regained his full health. And in his journey with us, um, he had a, an origin story of a rebirth. He had a very long, complicated, intricate dream, but in, I mean, a, a psychedelic journey, it was like a dream. But in one part of it, um, he was at a grand party happening in the, uh, the large waiting room of Grand Central Station. Right, a few blocks from here. Uh, and at this party, he was uh, dancing with his girlfriend, although he couldn't quite keep track of her. But he kept his parents were there and he was able to maintain eye contact with them. Um, and after a few minutes of this kind of dancing going on, he was suddenly whisked to a desert and he was on a journey. And on this journey, he realized he had no body that he was a spirit and he was moving forward and moving forward across this desert and then suddenly an entity appeared to him and the entity said you are not going to be allowed to see god but god has sent me to you to show you what the medicine can do and i'm going to show you what the medicine can do so we need to make a journey and he said, but I don't have a body. How could I travel? I don't have a body. And the entity said, then we'll have to go shopping for a body. So they walked and walked and the entity guided him. And in the desert appeared a, a clothes rack, you know, like in a department store. And they said, here's a clothes rack, but there's only one body there. But it was his body. And he um, approached it. He said, I, I have to have a body. I need a body. He put on the body and there was an explosion of light and he saw all of uh, his life literally flash before him. He saw his parents making love to conceive him. He saw his growth in his mother's belly. He saw all of the food and water and love and drugs that he had taken in his life 
that led him to that point. And then the entity gave him the final advice. The entity said, the secret of life is to be kind. That's the secret. That's all you need to know. So where did this story come from? This was the story that he told us of the journey that he went on. So the, the, the loveliest part of the story is that after this, over the next two or three months, his uh, cachectic, cadaverous, uh, cancer-ridden body, uh, psychic state went away. And he began to feel like he had a healthy, grown-up young man's body. So I like to say that the chemotherapy was brilliant at treating the physical cancer in his body, and the psychedelic-assisted uh, therapy was brilliant at treating the psychic injury that he had. Because if you know much about trauma, you know that when something is so vastly horrible, uh, you develop a trauma relationship to it. You know, if you're raped, if you're in combat, if you're held up at gunpoint, um, that is recorded in this really primal way in your brain. That's what PTSD is. So in a way, he had PTSD from his cancer. And only it wasn't the cancer itself. It was the body that the cancer gave him. That became his site of trauma. And his body healing and having a girlfriend and being in college and playing sports, all of that did not make the trauma body, uh, the spirit trauma body, go away. Didn't heal it. But this psychedelic journey that he did uh, in the NYU study um, brought that about. Now, I would not say that he had no problems whatsoever after that, because he and his girlfriend, they were not so good. You know, they're like not being able to keep track of each other. You know, you don't have to have an advanced degree to see that, you know, they kept losing each other and struggling to stay connected, whereas his relationship with his parents was there was always good eye contact. So it's not like, he, you know, everything was great in his life, but what he came for help with, which is this experience of himself, was transformed from being in the study. And it's a lovely story, and it's a true story. You know, uh, it happened before my very eyes, and this happened again and again. Uh, different people had different kinds of cancer-related trauma from what tr from what the cancer did to them and their life. It wasn't only what the cancer did to their body, but also what it did to their identity as a mother, as a father, as a worker, as a musician, as a cinematographer, as a um, you know early. Um, uh, learning disabilities worker. Each person had their own story of what happened as a result of cancer, and the psychedelic assisted therapy helped them retrieve more of themselves. Because one of the things that people will tell you when they when they get cancer is that suddenly that's all they are. They're a cancer a diagnosis, a chemotherapy, an oncologist, and everything shrinks to be nothing but a cancer-ridden body and treatment and a fight for life. And so our model for the for this study was to help people regain their fuller identity, regain their pleasure in relationships, their pleasure in their body, their pleasure in movement, their pleasure in food, their pleasure in play. You know, all of these things that had been lost, the psychedelic assisted therapy helped them regain.
But it wasn't the psychedelic alone. That was the arc that we had in mind for them. Like that was our therapy platform is to go through the person's life and learn what gave their life meaning. What are the sources of meaning for that particular individual? How did those get lost as a result of cancer diagnosis and cancer treatment? And how can we use the psychedelic assisted therapy experience to recover the parts of the self that had been lost? So that was the therapy platform for that particular study. The alcohol study uh, was similar, but it was much more focused on who are you in your life? What are the values that you have? And how has alcohol uh, compromised those values? Made you lose track of those values? How have you lost sight of what's important to you? Psychedelic assisted therapy sessions allowed people to really deeply feel the problems that they were having with alcohol and to envision a, a meaningful, fun, livable life without alcohol. You know, the, the medicine gave a sense of um, um, self-efficacy, which is just a fancy term for believing I can do it as opposed to I can't do it because many people who have, you know, alcohol related problems think I know I should quit, but I can't, I just can't do it. Or they think I could do it, but I don't have to, you know, that the problems aren't that bad. So the intensity of affect around relationships, what it did to my kids, what it did to my body, what it did to my spouse, what's happening to me at work, what it did to my creativity, to my dreams, all of these parts of the self that get lost as a result of overdependence on alcohol, those losses were really felt and the longing and yearning for growth in relationships and connection and self-expression um, led people to say, I now know more clearly why I need to stop. And I believe that I can. Yeah. And in addition, we had a, um, a well-documented, um, uh, empirically uh, tested uh, cognitive behavioral therapy that accompanied them. So in the first one, we used elements of existential therapy and logotherapy, Viktor Frankl, and many elements of palliative care and cancer care therapy. But in the alcohol study, we used a cognitive behavioral approach for the treatment of alcohol use disorders. So it wasn't the medicine alone, and it wasn't just a supportive relationship. It was the medicine experiences in a specific kind of therapeutic context, utilizing this, what's called the Stork model, um, which is you know, a, a well-known, well-recognized cognitive behavioral method for identifying triggers, identifying somatic triggers, planning for relapses, figuring out how to deal with affects that come up, you know, like regular CBT for alcohol use disorders. So there is a way that the therapy platform um, utilizes the intensity of the psychedelic experience and the psychedelic experience is shaped by the therapy platform. So this is what I was talking about before of how they inform one another. You know, another project that I was involved with um, looking at major depressive disorder used ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is it's called a third wave behavioral treatment. So, you know, this brings to mind another project that I was involved in with Yale uh, University. We used ACT as our therapy platform, which stands for Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Um, I don't think that I will even try to communicate what ACT is in, you know, in this particular, you know, um, 
setting because I, I wouldn't be doing justice to it. It's, it's too complicated to deliver. But uh, we used that particular model for the treatment of it. Although it's not really, uh, ACT is not a treatment for depression. ACT is a treatment for psychological inflexibility. ACT offers as its product, increased psychological flexibility, which means that ACT is being used for cancer-related problems, for alcohol, uh, alcohol use disorders, depression, anxiety, you know, a broad variety of kinds of problems where psychological rigidity, that is too many fixed rigid defenses are the problem and psychological flexibility is, is the goal, which means greater acceptance and tolerance of affect acceptance of the importance of paying attention to deep values that you have as opposed to uh, dismissal of, of values and engagement in the present moment, present moment focus and mindfulness, and also enact particularly a uncoupling of language from the thing spoken of. For example, uh, the word hypodermic needle is not a hypodermic needle right but our minds work so that the word evokes the same thing as the re as the real object and so act works to what it calls diffusion which is to separate what we imagine from what is real and of course much of what we experience in day-to-day -day life is the way that we imagine things to be based on experiences we've had in the past so bringing uh, uh, attention into the present can bring about a great expansion of, of what you can tolerate. You can tolerate the emotion of imagining the trauma that happened to you, but it also means that you are no longer expending so much energy in defense. And this is what psychedelic assisted therapy allows people to do in a pretty, uh, 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 what's the word, extreme way. Yeah. Psychodynamic therapy allows you to come into contact with your warded off contents in a much more gradual way. Mm. Meditation allows you to come into contact with warded off contents in a more gradual way. Anybody who's meditated knows that all kinds of uncomfortable thoughts come up, but you just sit there with them. Mm. No matter how anxious you get or how comfortable you get, you sit there and remain in witness to your inner world. And this is the model that we use in psychedelic assisted therapy. We invite our participants to be present to all that emerges from them as their defenses are softened or significantly decreased or perhaps even obliterated for an hour. And we call that obliteration um, ego dissolution. Yeah. Where the sense of who I am, my narrative identity, which is made up of all my defenses, they go offline for a half hour, an hour, an hour and a half. And you become consciousness without your self in the way of what is allowing you to perceive and remember. So there's this flooding of emotion, memory, and perception. I mean, psychedelics literally alter the way that we perceive the world. Psychedelic assisted therapy leads people to have uh, their common associative pathways in their brain decrease and their unusual associative pathways increase, right? So you have more unusual connections and fewer of your usual typical connections. And a couple of times in what you're describing, you talked about ruminative patterns. Ruminative patterns are when you think the same thought 
over and over and over again. You try to solve the problem in the same way and think the same thoughts and say the same things and talk to the same people and do the same things. This is your defenses at their worst. This is your defenses trying to keep you safe, but causing problems because of their rigidity, uh, detachment from the present. And um, psychedelics are kind of like jumping into the deep end of awareness of um, what you've warded off. And they're not for everyone. Some people are really much better suited to a a path of gradualism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And psychedelics are not for everyone. They're not. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that, those stories. You know, I think as a initial reaction to what you just said, this is a related to rumination. I've said this before on, on the show and you very well may, may know this man, uh, Dr. Jerry Rosenbaum, who is leading the, basically the Massachusetts general hospital, new psychedelic research center. And one of the things I remember taking away from my conversation with him was his observation. He's also a psychiatrist has been for, for decades that rumination is a, and maybe the key commonality in all mental illnesses that it it seems to be a common pattern in mental illnesses in here, in his experiences. And he had, I think, similar hopes about what, how psychedelics might be able to, to help with that. I want to read a couple of other quotes. And the first one I want to read is related to, to alcoholism. I think actually both, both, both may be related to alcoholism here. And this again is from how to change your mind. Alcoholism can be understood as a spiritual disorder. This is from Stephen Ross. Stephen Ross told me, Michael Pollan, the first time we met in the treatment room at NYU. Over time, you lose your connection to everything but this compound. Life loses all meaning. At the end, nothing is more important than that bottle, not even your wife and your kids. Eventually, there is nothing that you won't sacrifice for it. It was Ross who first told me the story of Bill W., the founder of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, how he got sober after a mystical experience on Belladonna and in in the 1950s sought to introduce LSD into the fellowship. This is the second quote. To use a drug to promote sobriety might sound counterintuitive, even crazy. Yet it makes a certain sense when you consider how reliably psychedelics can sponsor spiritual breakthroughs, as well as the conviction central to the AA philosophy that before she can hope to recover, the alcoholic must first acknowledge her powerlessness. AA takes a dim view of the human ego and like psychedelic therapy attempts to shift the addict's attention from the self to a higher power, as well as to the consolations of fellowship, the sense of interconnectedness. One thing that was occurring to me when you were speaking just now was a a line that I remember hearing you make in a prior podcast interview where you were making the analogy of how, you know, in the 17th and 18th century, the capacity for x-ray technology existed, right? X-rays were always technically scientifically possible, but it took a time and a place and a technological capability for human beings to discover X-ray technology and its widespread applications. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, you're mapping that story onto modern times 
and and I have to say, you know, I would imagine for most people who have not had the kind of psychedelic experience you were just speaking about or about the young man who had leukemia, it sounds fanciful and impossible and like science fiction. That being said, you know, I this is why I'm personally incredibly interested in this stuff. I've read enough stories. I have some minimal personal experience with this stuff. I've always considered myself to be wholly secular in my outlook on life, especially in my adult life. But I, I would love to give you an opportunity to speak about that x-ray analogy mm-hmm. and what as a doctor, what, just what as a human being in your experience of seeing these amazing transformations in people of what in the hell you think is going on here? You know, is it really that this is beyond our comprehension or do you think these people are accessing some higher order consciousness? I want to leave that open-ended for you to just take it and run with it because I would be fascinated to get your response. Let me start here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm going to begin answering your question by mentioning a, uh, an analyst from the 80s to the present uh, named Christopher Bolas, B-O-L-L-A-S. And Christopher Bolas has written a number of papers on the transformational object. Now, the very first transformational object is our mother or our primary caretaker. Uh, her role is to be present to us and help us transform our contents, discontents, uncomfortableness, desire for comfort, and really all of our all of our uh, regulation needs to be attentive to them and to tra- be a transformative environment that allows the infant to grow in maturity and self-regulation. So our very first transformational object is our mother, who is our caretaker, in whose love we learn who we are, how we regulate ourselves, and how we relate to the outside world Hmm. around us. And if all goes well, you get better and better at realizing the difference between you and your mother. And yet this idea that there is something out there that will allow you to change in a way so you feel more alive, more safe, more aroused, to have the right balance of arousal and calm, excitement and familiarity. Um, uh, there's so many ways, you know, to, to regulate food, to regulate temperature. It starts off in the most basic way. But after we leave our mother, then we are always looking for new ways for transforming the self. Some people may join a religion that promises, if you believe, then you will be granted entry into the, you know, the kingdom of heaven. Or if you learn how to play tennis and become a tennis expert, then you will be transformed into this kind of person. If you enter psychoanalysis, then these troubles and these limitations and these conflicts will be transformed into less problematic ones. So we're always looking for a way to become more of ourselves, more connected, more alive, right? Mm. Psychedelics are one path for this. Psychoanalysis is one path 
for this. Um, becoming a Civil War reenactment devotee is one method for this. It's a way of engaging with the world so that you become somebody that you like being better. AA is definitely like this. Anybody who has an addictive disorder, when they, when they first encounter their drug of choice, they go, oh, wow, now I really like who I am. Mm -hmm. Many people think that addiction is about being a hedonist and seeking pleasure. It's not. It's about becoming more alive in a way that feels valuable. Some people think, oh, I've had a couple of glasses of wine. Now I can talk at a party and feel comfortable. Or, oh, I've taken some opiates. Now I don't feel so angry and grumpy all the time. I can get along better. So the, the, the substance is one which facilitates being a better you a you that you like better, a you that the world <laughs> likes better, a world that sort of gets on better. The problem with addiction is that the negative consequences mount up from some drug use and the, ne and the positive uh, valences start to go down. But the compulsion, the rumination is doing the same thing over and over and over again, looking for the way it was at the beginning, but it's not there, but you don't believe in anything else. And this is what, what Steve uh, Ross was quoting. The person who is deep in an addiction says the only path towards feeling like a decent, functional human being is to drink or to take a drug. And AA works at saying you can expand and become far more than you thought without the drug. First, we want to stop the, uh, the intrusion of that drug into you. And then we have a program for self-transformation. The AA program is a program of self-transformation. Only step one and step 12 mention alcohol. Mm -hmm. Steps two through 11 are dedicated to character development, problem and character problem solving and transformation, developing a relationship to a higher power, developing a sense of responsibility and duty to the community. So it's not so much selfish, but like I receive and I give, uh, I accept my shortcomings and my um, uh, uh, character flaws. I, reach, I do service to other people. So this is a transformational process. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen right away. It's not a treatment. It is a process that you surrender to. Anybody who's been an analytic treatment knows that there's a point where you have to surrender to the process. You surrender to the AA process, you surrender to psychoanalysis, and you surrender to psychoanalytic transformation. That is, you say, I don't know how to do this, but I am going to trust that this thing outside me, these people, this medicine, this, this uh, uh, agency, this cultural construction, I'm going to surrender to it and take it in. And in return, I'm going to give back to it. So, you know, people start going to AA, they don't know what to do. They're told, bring coffee, set up the chairs, you know, hand out, you know, leaflets. So right away, you both take and give. So this connection is about a two-way street. You don't just take, you give. And in any religion, there's something called tithing, which you have to give back to take care of the church, which is taking care of you. People who are members of the Santo Daime, which is a, a syncretic ayahuasca religion, you don't just go and take it in. You also have to give back. 
and you have to support the church, support the practice in America, support the legal problems that the church, that Santo Daimio Church is facing in America. So the sense of receiving and giving is central to most transformative um, uh, processes. Now, this kind of transformative process can go very badly. It can go, it can go bad when, for example, um, Jim Jones, Guyana, uh, that was a transformational process that was extremely disruptive and extremely destructive to people, right? So uh, there's no guarantee that the transformational process is going to be a wholesome or sacred or holy one, but that's human nature. Yeah. Some people use power for um, really, really destructive purposes. The the thought or the thought experiment, the idea that you brought up that I, I had never quite considered it this way about something like an x-ray technology as it relates to psychedelics. And I would be curious yeah, to know. Let me, you, let me interrupt for a second because yeah. I want to put a, try to refine something you said. It isn't that we didn't have x-ray technology. I mean, what are the point I was trying to make is that we had x-rays and gamma rays and microwaves and ultraviolet rays before we knew it, right? We didn't have the technology to see them, but they were still there, yeah. right? And if anybody had said, oh, there's some kind of force that can go through a rock, you would go like, you're crazy. Like That's not true. You're making that up. It's science fiction. But with technology, we began to see that there are many things that seemed delusional that were actually there. And that's because our capacity to perceive them was altered by technology. They were always there. Technology allowed us to see them. So there is a, a, a light of questioning. Perhaps psychedelics are a technology that allows us to see what is really there. Not to bring up imagination of something that's coming from within. Now, the, the, the participant that I told you about who went on this journey and saw his parents, that I think is an internally generated origin story. He went back to the very beginning of his life, to his conception, to his development in utero, and to growing up. So that's that's his origin story that was created as a psychic event. But there are some people who believe that... <clears throat> A spirit guide comes to them, and that spirit guide is really there. It's not an internal projection of a spirit guide. The spirit guide is really there. So I am not here to tell you which one is true, <laughs> <laughs> because people are entitled to believe what they believe to be true. And I don't think that it's going to get us anywhere to try to prove one right and the other wrong in terms of what's out there. You know, I, I certainly believe the idea that if we can't see it, it isn't there is incredibly arrogant, mm. right? Mm. To think that, you know, people say, show me the data, show me the data. Well, just because there isn't data doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means that it hasn't been proven in the way that you like. And so you can say, well, it doesn't exist if it's been proven in the way that I like. But that seems kind of self-centered to me. Yeah. You know? Well, you are a man. You are a man of science, right? I mean, you are a medical doctor, and I am. But I'm a, I'm a psychoanalyst. I'm a humanist, and I'm an artist. I'm not primarily a researcher. 
I've been involved in research and I understand research, but um, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be characterized uh, primarily as a man of science. Yeah. If you want yeah. that, there are there are um, people who are real scientists. Fair enough. <laughs> and I don't consider myself to be a real scientist. I've been involved with lots of scientific projects. There are a few other quotes I want to read out. And okay. <laughs> I, would I would love to, to get your, your thoughts on them. You already mentioned this about meditation and, and the link between perhaps what is happening with people when, especially long-term meditators and the effect that psychedelics can have on the human mind. And this is a, these are, again, quotes from How to Change Your Mind. It was Brewer, you'll recall, who first discovered, who discovered that the brains of experienced meditators look much like the brains of people on psilocybin. The practice and the medicine both dramatically reduce activity in the default mode network. It's another quote that I think is related to what we've already talked about. Brewer, B-R-U-E-U-R? B-R-E-W-E-R. Oh, B-R-E-W-E-R. Okay, so I'm not familiar with that. That isn't a quote from me, I hope. Not a quote from you. That's okay, another, good. Another, another I don't know. The... I don't know who that Brewer is. I was, you know, there's a there's an analyst named Breuer who worked with Freud and worked with hysteria and put people into trance in order to uh, elicit the warded off sexuality part of their stories, hmm. which is another part of our story. But that's a different. Yeah, a different I think this, If I remember correctly, I think this is a more modern. Uh, I should a so. Modern researcher. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is related to the role of the therapist in in this process in general, which I, I know is something you have spent a good chunk of, of time in, in focusing on. Right. Dying depression, obsession, eating disorders are all exacerbated by the tyranny of an ego and the fixed narratives it constructs about our relationship to the world. By temporarily overturning the, that tyranny and throwing our minds into an unusually plastic state, Robert Robin Carhart Harris would call it a state of heightened entropy. Psychedelics, with the help of a good therapist, give us an opportunity to propose some new, more constructive stories about the self and its relationship to the world, stories that might just stick. And this is, this is a quote about meaning itself. No doubt the suggestibility of the mind on psychedelics and the guiding presence of psychotherapists also play a role in attributing meaning to the experience. And this is about you. In preparing volunteer, volunteers for their journey, Jeffrey Gus speaks ex explicitly about the acquisition of meaning, telling his patients, quote, that the medicine will show you hidden or unknown shadow parts of yourself, that you will again, that you will gain insight into yourself and come to learn come to learn about the meaning of life and existence. He also tells them that they may have a mystical or transcendent experience, but carefully refrains from defining it. Quote, as a result of this molecule being in your body, you'll understand more about yourself and life and the universe. And more often than not, this happens. Replace that sciency word molecule with sacred mushroom or plant teacher. And you have the incantations of a shaman at the start of a ceremonial healing. Really? I said that? The, the, the last part, I think your quote ends at, <laughs> as a result of this mo molecule being in your body, you'll understand more about yourself and life and the universe. The, the closing sentence was from, was from Michael. The closing two sentences there were from, from Michael Pollan. All right. Well, I'd like to amend that <clears throat> um, from what I said. It's not 
just understanding something. It's having a new experience of yourself, right? Uh, as I've grown older and done more work with psychedelics and in psychoanalysis, I'm more convinced that it is a new emotional experience that brings about transformation and that our insight and narrative about it follows the new experience. If we just have an insight, it may remain apart from uh, active lived experience. And we all know people who can talk endlessly about the, uh, the nature or the creation of their suffering, but that may be more informative than transformative. That kind of understanding is transformative to some people at some times. Mm. But with psychedelic work, we're looking to bring about a new experience of the individual self and the individual in relation to the culture that they're in um, by experiencing more of themselves. In the, in the PTSD MDMA study, uh, people remember their trauma and they remember more details. They remember more emotions about it. And when they do so, they're doing it in a super supportive, carefully constructed environment so that instead of being dissociated and having amnesia, they have an association that is an emotional connection to something that they remember rather than being dissociated from something that they forgot. And this would be overwhelming and re-traumatizing, a.k.a. a flashback. If it were to happen in an uh, untherapeutic setting, but when it happens in a carefully constructed therapeutic setting, it allows the emotions of the memory to change. So they're no longer so terrifying, no longer so enraging, and they can be thought about and thought through with support around. So instead of being alone, terrorized, leading to dissociation and amnesia, you have memory, emotion, and support to allow you to incorporate those stories that were the core of the trauma into yourself. So they don't make the, the memories go away. They just reorchestrate the affective component of it, which allows it to move from being a trauma memory to just being a bad, bad memory of something awful that happened, but which can be understood and integrated. And that allows freedom to see the present more freely. One of the things that you see in people who are traumatized is that the things that you need to learn to do to avoid trauma happening again, lead to a, a massive constriction in your day-to-day -day life. People are untrustworthy. It's impossible to really feel intimately connected to somebody because you're so afraid of being traumatized. So this guardedness that you see in trauma against it ever happening again has a long negative consequence, and that's called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, with numbness, dissociation, flashbacks, <clears throat> and you know all of the symptoms that you that you get in PTSD. Yeah. So this. So, uh, MDMA assisted therapy allows uh, for a greater uh, richness of memory with emotional content in it in this super supportive environment with two therapists and music and the whole, all the therapy before and after and so forth. So, the whole thing is a transformative environment, the whole treatment, all five months of it, not just the medicine session. Yeah. The whole thing is preparing for the session, having the session, and then integrating what happens after the session. You know, in some ways, psychedelics and MDMA create 
a, uh, an alteration in the brain that allows lots of different things to become unglued and to become possible. But it's the context that it's happening that allows that energy to be something that has a certain kind of construction and arc to it. With PTSD and MDMA, the arc is healing of trauma. If you are a scientist and you wanted to solve a problem like Francis Crick and the shape of the double helix, you know, he used LSD um, to solve the problem of what shape could LSD have? There was all this data about what the DNA molecule was supposed to look like. And he couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out. Under the influence of LSD, he saw how the double helix explained all of the scientific data information. And suddenly he had this insight of how to put it all together in a new way. And that's because all of the, well, this is a story I like. And that's because all of the things that said, well, it couldn't be this, it couldn't be that, it's gotta be this, it's gotta be that. They were like taken offline for a while. And he was able to creatively use the information and put it together in a, in a new way. It's an example of how a psychedelic experience can be used for scientific creativity rather than healing of a um, personal problem. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's one more quote I want to read, and then I know we're getting short on time. So I, there, there's one more question I, I would love to ask you. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is a quote again from the book, and this is about you specifically. Jeff Gus, Jeffrey Gus, a co-author on the paper and a psychiatrist, interprets, interprets what happens during the session in terms of psilocybin's egolytic effect. Egolytic, right. The drug's ability to, to either silence or at least muffle the voice of the ego. In his view, which is informed by his psychoanalytic training, the ego is a mental construct that performs certain functions on behalf of the self. Chief among these are maintaining the boundary between the conscious and the unconscious realms of the mind and the boundary between self and other or a subject and object. It is only when these boundaries fade or disappear as they seem to do under the influence of psychedelics that we can quote, let go of rigid patterns of thought, allowing us to perceive new meanings with less fear. The whole question of meaning is central to the approach of the NYU therapist and is perhaps especially helpful in understanding the experience of the cancer patients on psilocybin. For many of these patients, a diagnosis of terminal cancer constitutes, among other things, a crisis of meaning. Why me? Why have I been signaled out for this fate? Is there any sense to life in the universe? Under the weight of this existential crisis, one's horizons shrink, one's emotional repertoire contracts, and one's focus narrows as the mind turns in on itself, shutting out the world. Loops of rumination and worry come to occupy more of one's mental time and space, reinforcing habits of thought. It, it becomes ever more difficult to escape. I, I want to close just by asking you about the future. And, you know, I, I first want to just note how much I appreciate your, your efforts in this realm and your open-mindedness and your, willing to sh- your willingness to share data with someone like Michael Pollan and, and make this information more widely known to the public because as a layman, as somebody who is just curious about human well-being, this strikes me as a real possible realm and area of hope for humanity in general. And this is still an uphill battle, right? These substances are still stigmatized and are illegal. As the Mm -hmm. final question with this, right? In your mind, what is the role in a sane society 
for these substances. And I know I've heard you speak about this, that th- th- this is not a silver bullet. These are not panaceas. But in your, in your judgment, given the amount of difficulty and psychological distress and trauma that people have in this world, what, what is the sane outlook and perspective that a country like ours, in your mind, really should have towards, towards these substances in, in healing and in human well-being? Well, that's a really big question because when you say healing and human well-being, um, it's sad to say that that there's a distinction between those two. But but there is. Yeah. I'd like to uh, start my answer to your question by uh, noting that in cultures around the world and in cultures throughout time, psychedelics have existed uh, in a socially acceptable, socially valued construct. They're not countercultural, they are cultural, but they are marginal, that is. They're not for everyone, and they are for conditions, people, situations that are, are, that are at the margins and that uh, call for uh, a rather extreme mode of intervention, okay? Um, also, they have characteristically been regulated by culturally sanctioned people, sometimes shamans, sometimes um, uh, other kinds of religious leaders, other times therapists, other times um, uh, people with a great deal of experience and knowledge and wisdom. So the idea of self-selection and taking psychedelics because you want them and taking them on your own is a, uh, an artifact of American individualism. Mm. that says we have a right to do with our consciousness what we choose. And we do. That doesn't mean that it's always wise to do so. And I think that while some people can take psychedelics on their own, whenever they want to, without problem, I believe that we need to have cultural um, structures, maybe a lot of different cultural structures, not one, but numerous ones, where uh, learned people, wise people, trustworthy people, ethical people, um, guide the way and show the way and bring people into the world of psychedelic healing in a safe, sane, ethical way. Um, so that's that's part of, part of my answer. I think that, that you need, for the most part, to be shown how to do it and shown how to do it wisely and shown when not to do it and help. And it needs to be part of, I believe it should be part of a community context that's supportive of it. I mean, this isn't uh, uh, exotic. You know, if, if you want kids that are going to a rave to be safe, they need education about the medications they're ta- or the, uh, the drugs they're taking, the medications, about being hydrated, about uh, nutrition, about uh, watching out for each other. So it's not just for medical psychiatric problems. Any place where people are using these powerful substances, there needs to be a community of support that helps people do it safely because you lose your capacity to take care of yourself. You become more porous to the environment and more in need of support from the environment. Yeah. Um, what was your question? I think just generally the, the, the sane and wise place of these substances in our culture. And I think you just addressed mm-hmm. the, 
the healing aspect and then you know maybe the right. well-being aspect as well what 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 role you think that they play in that regard i mean i don't think you need to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist uh to guide somebody on a helpful journey with psychedelics but i do think if you are going to treat somebody uh, who you are constructing as suffering from major depressive disorder. And that's the, the, the uh, discourse that you're involved in. If you think that what you're doing is treating them for a major depressive disorder, then I think you need to be immersed in that particular uh, discourse of how you, how you construct the other person and how you construct what's wrong and how you construct the arc of where they're going to go. You know, if you're an Ayurvedic doctor, then you would be looking at, you know, Pitta, Kapha, and I don't remember the third one, but you'll be looking at these different energies, and you would say, well, you've got, you know, you're, you're having imbalance in this particular energy and that energy. That's the worldview, and if the, the person that's suffering and the healer have a shared worldview of what the deal is and what better is going to look like, and of course, if the community agrees that that's what better looks like, then you have a system in which these medicines are are you know, integrated in, in a healthy way that is going to bring about change, not only in the individual, but in the individual's relationship to their, to their culture. When you look at Central uh, Caribbean, I mean, at, at uh, Central American and Caribbean uh, trans-based religions, they aren't fringy people on the, on the outskirts of town. They happen with the community around, watching somebody go into trance, speak forbidden things, uh, channel, speak in tongues, fall out. You know, all of these extreme states are culturally held and given meaning. So there's something at the edge that's extreme, but there also is a way that the community says, we get this, we see what's, what's happening here and we support this being present in our in our culture. And right now, what we are seeing is the movement towards the treatment of major depressive disorder, alcohol use disorder, as the way that our culture is saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna try letting psychedelics, psilocybin and, and MDMA uh, come back into the culture if they can prove safety and efficacy in these particular discourses or paradigms and that's the way we're doing it right now but but you know as you know in some um communities and in some states there is a decriminalization movement which is uh devoted to the idea that uh non uh licensed mental health practitioners can be meaningful safe uh guides and that people can seek psychedelic healing for a broad variety of reasons. You don't have to have a severe depressive disorder or alcoholism to use them as part of a culturally sanctioned model. Right now in America, you have to have major depressive disorder or alcohol use disorder or something like that in order to be culturally, have a culturally approved access to that particular form of um, transformation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jeff, I know your time is extremely valuable and I want to reiterate again, how much I think I speak for many people in, in expressing an appreciation for your clarity on these matters and your willingness to delve into the research and to play a role in what I think is going to be a, a real tra transformation in our civilization. Thank you for doing this and for sharing well, thank you for having so much time and, and going over what I think is one of the more fascinating subjects on planet earth. <laughs> um, so, so I really appreciate you doing this and 
Thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And thank you for getting the word out. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. Thank you.